Let's pray. Father, indeed, we, we need thee not only every hour, but every moment. And we, we do come to thee. We ask you that uh, tonight you would bless us with, again, the discernment, wisdom, and guiding of the Spirit, who your Son promised would guide us into truth. That as we look at your word, we'll see therein and in your creation the glories that you have prepared for those who love you and who love your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. That was glorious singing. I, I think that is a foretaste of what we're going to see in heaven. I feel badly for the rest of the church that doesn't have that kind of singing. It's bad enough that the theological content of much of today's Christian music is, is vapid. There's almost nothing there, as Ruth Graham once mentioned, 7-Eleven music, seven words repeated 11 times. If they're the right words, that would be glorious, but thank you for those rapturous moments that we, we just had in sharing our heart in, in worshipful praise. Well, we, we spoke this morning on heaven, and I'm going to continue that tonight uh, in a little different vein. You know, the message this morning was, was certainly keyed for the realities of heaven and about getting in. Tonight, I want to, um, again, continue speaking about heaven but in a manner that stresses why it is so important that we have a, the view of heaven is that it should be a blessing. And sadly, that's absent from the church today. So I'd ask you, are you looking forward to heaven? Or do you fear that it's going to be an eternity of tedious boredom? There are Christians today that that's their view. Shocking, but true. Again, we want to remember that, that anchor verse that I would say certainly gives us the nature of heaven. If not, it's individual, intricate glories. It tells us that in your presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What does that mean? The Apostle Paul writing to the Philippians in the first chapter says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose, but I am hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ. For that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Paul was interested in going to heaven. We see that. Unfortunately, as I said, that's not the view of many Christians today. Paul was willing to stay because he saw that was the will of God, that he might be of further service to the master. I'm reminded of the story of the preacher who, um, preaching on the glories of heaven at the end of the message, said, raise your hands if you want to go to heaven. And he was satisfied, he was thrilled that the whole congregation raised their hand. Then he noticed one young man had not done so. Confronting him after the meeting, he says, why don't you want to go to heaven? He says, oh, I do. I thought you were getting a group together to go tonight. <laughs> you know, 
dying sometime in the future always seems like a better option, right? That, again, that's, that's part of the nature God has given us. You know, it's true God has given us this will to survive. And unfortunately, it's gotten to the point today where, like I said, some, some believers aren't looking forward to heaven even in the future. What a sad situation. These people are forfeiting the peace they might otherwise have. They're living in fear almost as, as much as the unsaved who know they're unsaved. I believe they're setting themselves up for failure. Heartaches and misspent time, at least in this life, and giving up on the rewards that they could earn for heaven because they don't have the right attitude. They're not looking forward to it. You know, what we mentioned this morning, Jesus spoke to the Sadducees, ye do err in that ye know not the Scriptures, neither the power of God. That's sad when that's true about Christians. In his book, Heaven, Randy Alcorn relates about receiving a letter from a young lady. She was married to a youth pastor. She was thanking him because she, he, her eyes had been opened, but saved at the age of five, at the age of seven, she got terrible news about heaven, that she'd lose her identity, would know nothing about earth. And nothing over the years changed that view. Either heaven wasn't being preached from Scripture, or what she was hearing was reinforcing it. How do you live for Christ when you're not looking forward? She said she had a fear of dying and eternity. That's a terrible position for a believer to be in. You know, on one hand, we have Hollywood writers and false spiritual leaders and other so-called visionaries spewing fantasy and foolishness to a seemingly insatiable crowd. <laughs> Often, some of us Christians are right in there. I'm not saying all fantasy is bad, but what does it do to your view of Scripture and the truth of Scripture. You know, it's long been correctly accused of the church that we seldom speak on sin, judgment, uh, and hell. But you know, research by organizations who have approached and, and talked to professing believers point out that the average view of heaven by a believer is far removed from the truth of Scripture. And there's only one way that can happen. That's if heaven is not being preached from Scripture. You know, as Jabe Nicholson once pointed out, when we fail to teach a doctrine from the truth of Scripture, Satan is going to teach that doctrine from his lies. That leads to death for the unbelievers and unfruitful life for believers. The common error amongst Christians, again, those who Barna and Pew and others would identify as those who are really are believers, is that heaven is going to be this unending, boring session of, of individual, solo, lonesome worship of God sitting on a cloud playing a harp. That's a characterization of it. Those of us who look at the Bible, we can't figure out how people can come to that conclusion. But the church at large today spends very little time in Scripture. Other Christians who have a smattering of Bible knowledge, they form a synergy of partial truth mixed with the fantasy and fabrication. You, know, you pick it up subconsciously from what the media is spewing today, the entertainment industry. And Christian media is really not any better if you look at what they put out. 
There's very little piercing truth that's going to convict somebody. Now look, it's better than some of the filth that's being put out by Hollywood. But it paints a milk toast picture of our God. It portrays an effeminate Jesus and a gutless, worthless, wonderless heaven. I, what does that do to build up Christians? Why do we get our truth there? Again, I'm painting with a very broad brush, the Christian church. Why would we get our truth there instead of from the glory of Scripture? You know, in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis said, if you read history, you find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. I agree with Mr. Lewis, but the problem's been compounded. Today, even if a Christian thinks about the next life, his errant view of eternity does little to inspire him in this world. Broadly speaking, the church has allowed our view of God, his word, and his promises to become of such little value that few are motivated to work for their master. Lewis concludes that quote with, it is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. Again, I agree and add that even more Christians today are mired in the world because they find heaven, the heaven they believe in, so unappealing and uninspiring. Since heaven has so little attraction for many Christians and they seemingly have no fear of failing their master, it's not surprising they focus all their efforts on having your best life now, to quote a very errant but wildly popular church leader. How ironic. In living for gain today, we'll forfeit the rewards you might have had for all eternity. The things they gain here in time are going to burn up. Can't keep earthly things, but they won't let go. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain that which he can never lose, Jim Elliott said, quoting loosely uh, Philip Matthew. Jim Elliott had a right view of eternity. Jim Elliott had a right view of God. He knew the scripture and the power of God. It doesn't mean you can't enjoy this world, but it certainly helps us to put it in perspective. A.W. Tozer said, the most important thing about you it's so what you think of God. And he's right. A correct view of God will inspire us to fruitful action. A worldly view of God mires us in the affairs of the world. We'll pursue worldly wisdom, worldly activities, all of which are no heavenly or earthly use. And Paul tells us, the writer to the Hebrews tells us in the sixth chapter, but beloved, we are persuaded persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love which ye have showed toward his name, and that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that ye be not slothful but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises." I don't think Paul, could, the writer to the Hebrews, could say that with conviction to the majority of believers today. You know, tonight I'm going to try to look at some of the uh, glorious blessings that Scripture gives us 
and for reasons to expect this from our God when we are joined to him in perfection, in eternity. And we pray, thy kingdom come. <laughs> How many Christians really want the kingdom of God to come? But maybe tomorrow, Lord, I got ticks to the game tonight. I, don't come tonight. One reason such a lackluster view of heaven has developed is philosophical error. You know, Plato. It's crept into the church. That is, the mistaken belief that everything physical is by its very nature bad. You know, Plato had supposed human beings were spiritual beings, only briefly trapped in a physical, evil, wicked world. Therefore, according to that philosophy, no physical things which would ever be present in the perfect environment. Heaven, as, as it were. And many Christians have bought into that. Why, if there are physical things in heaven, they say, someone might actually enjoy these things. Pleasure? Oh, the horror of it. Psalm 1611, in thy presence is fullness of joy at thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. We see much evil in the world and we see pursuit for the pleasures of flesh. And then we ascribe all things physical um, and evil nature. That's, that's not scriptural. We hear certain words and phrases we assign a meaning to them. That's the mechanics of language. It's how we, we communicate. But sometimes we grab the core of a word and what we do is we embrace the modest and let the grand escape. Salvation and gospel are, are words like that. How wide is the concept of salvation? How broad is the good news? Well, I agree the most important thing is to get the gospel of salvation to somebody so they're saved. So they'll spend all eternity in the presence of the glory of God. But thus it end there. You know, Paul talking to the elders at Miletus, the elders from Ephesus, letting them know, I'm innocent of the blood of all men. I've taught the whole counsel of God. And then he encourages them to do likewise with the warnings about false teaching. Turn to Romans 1. We'll, we'll go there and look at that. But if we preach and gloriously preach and correctly and obediently preach salvation through Jesus Christ, does that preclude us from expanding and talking about salvation the way it's presented to us in the gospel, the story of redemption? Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. The just shall live by faith. You know, like I said, we rightly focus on the power of God to save a human soul from the damnation to the lake of fire. But is that the full extent of the gospel? I don't think so. Doesn't Scripture also proclaim the release and redemption of creation itself? It, it, it's groaning and suffering under the ravages of sin. Man's sin. I mean, other than man, did... God's physical creation sin? 
No, but it suffers nonetheless, and we're told it's going to be redeemed from that. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteous men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. What's on display here? It's the invisible attributes of God. Are they good? How are they on display? A display that removes any excuse man might have for his own unrighteousness. It tells us it's in creation. We're told in Genesis when God created, said, this is good. It's very good. Is that bad? Verse 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. The ironic thing for us is that mankind erroneously assigns the evil nature of sin directly to the physical creation instead of acknowledging it is the effect of man's sin that has tainted this creation. Therefore, man assumes no physical thing will exist in, in heaven. So he pursues with vigor what it has to offer in its tainted form here, in time, rather than desiring to enjoy it forever when it's restored to God's perfection again in eternity. Unregenerate man, of course, elevates creation to the point of that becomes his God and his object of worship. But, worship, but sadly, many Christians aren't far behind. What did Lewis mean when he says, aim, aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in? Aim at earth and you get neither. I think it's applicable on two levels, in the here and now and in eternity. We ought to see this creation for what it is, tainted by man, but God loves it and is going to restore it. We ought to have the same love for his original creation that we have for lost souls and then even greater for those who have come to redemption. You know, William McDonald talks about uh, the first time a little city girl was taken for a walk in the darkness of a clear country night, she is said to have remarked, Oh, mother, if heaven is so beautiful on the wrong side, what must it be like on the right side? <laughs> you know, out of the mouths of babes. Here's somebody in the innocence of a child understood the difference between fallen creation and God's beautiful creation one day she was going to see restored. When we think this present world is the best it's ever going to be, we pursue its pleasures. Fearing this is the only chance we'll get to enjoy them. That's a lie from the father of lies. And that's why Christians who fear they're not going to have a chance for pleasure in heaven pursue it here. Now, I'm going to be very loose with this term, the Stoics. They believed in controlling and restricting emotion. And I'm going to apply it as it was by many to the physical thing itself. The Stoics believed uh, that physical things were evil because they would draw you away and draw out your emotions, in, in, including pleasure. So they avoided them, and they were certain in the next life that wouldn't exist. The Epicureans, who wanted to taste everything, they, were, they, were, they, were, they wanted all that this world could offer, 
Why? Because they feared the Stoics were right about the next life. So they pursued the pleasures in this life with abandon. Neither was correct. But we ought to pursue the pleasures of eternity with at least with as much abandon as the Epicureans pursued it here. You know, Moses in Exodus 33 wanted to see the glory of God. We learned before that he was on a first-name basis with God, and, and, and he said, show me your ways that I, I may fully follow you. And he was asking because he wanted to lead God's people. Romans 1 tells us explicitly that God has revealed his glory to us through creation, and that this revelation, even in what is now tainted with sin, is sufficient for us to have no excuse before him. When we take the position that God's original creation was anything less than utter perfection or that Milton's paradise lost can never be reclaimed, we're denying the truth which God has given us and has put on display for us. Such beliefs would render us unfit for leading. Moses wanted to fully know God so he could lead. You know, our hearts are desperately wicked. But we're aided in straying by the evil one, the father of lies. Again, Randy Elkhorn in his his book on heaven uh, talked about some of Satan's lies. And he said that some of Satan's favorite lies are about heaven. Revelation 13, 6 tells us about the satanic beast. He opens his mouth. He opens his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. Our enemy slanders three things, God's person, God's people, and God's place, namely heaven. Satan need not convince us that heaven doesn't exist. He need only convince us that heaven is a place of boring, unearthly existence. If we believe that lie, we'll be robbed of our joy and anticipation. We'll set our mind on this life and not the next, and we won't be motivated to share our faith. Why should we share the good news that people can spend eternity in a boring, ghostly place that even we're not looking forward to? I think Randy Elkhorn did a good job of condensing that thought. The average Christian is afraid that there will be no pleasure in heaven. We talked this morning about the absence of misery, pain, sickness, tears, and death. Let's look a little bit at um, what the effects of their removal will have on eternity because they'll allow us to be truly immersed in joyful splendor. Why will we glory in reunions with loved ones that occur in a true paradise? Not some dreary, antiseptic, underwhelming, monotonous place that's a Eternal letdown. Look, resurrected Jesus had a physical body. We're going to have a physical body. Physical bodies demand a physical location in which to dwell. That's, that's godly truth. So let's consider the physical side of heaven. And, and why look at that instead of the glory? Well, God's the one who told us that his glory is revealed in his creation. If you, we want to try to describe God's glory, we, we could go to Ezekiel 1. I, mean, I don't know if you've read it recently. <laughs> I, it's, it's a blessing to read it. It points out that it's difficult for us to understand the glory of God. But on the physical nature of creation, 
and eternity. You know, Paul writing to Timothy in, in 1 Timothy 4 says, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. By means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. You know, if the current creation is to be accepted and enjoyed as Paul tells us here to do, how much less so when it's a renewed creation and when it and we are removed from the very presence of sin? You know, if we look at Eden, a place of tranquility, the garden gave up its bountiful produce without toil or curse. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about toil because it wasn't a labor of burden. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 8, we read, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also was in the midst of the garden. Jumping down to, to verse 15, And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. This was before the, the fall, right? Was eating fruit and dressing the garden part of the curse? No, of course not. In the new earth, it's fully reasonable to expect that both of these conditions will continue without the curse. Life will be similar to life in Eden. I'm not suggesting that all the earth will be like Eden was then, but rather that its paradise nature will be. You know, nowhere in Scripture do I see any uh, suggestion our environment will be confined to an agrarian society of naked gardeners. I do see much evidence to the contrary. You know, there are some today who derive an intense sense of pleasure, I think, worshipful of God in tending their gardens. I think in heaven that will continue. It will be possible on a level we can't, again, understand. I think we can properly infer from the text that it's God's plan that Mankind be occupied with some form of physical pursuit, but it won't be an oppressive labor. It'll be joyful. And Scripture does not support the notion that all human progress will be discarded, leaving only a garden. We read from Revelation 21 this morning. I'll, I may want to turn there. We'll read, read again out of the book of the Revelation. Revelation chapter 21, speaking of... Uh, the holy city, the new Jerusalem. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. So from the idyllic garden of 
Eden to the heavenly city, uh, both in the eternal state. Verse 10, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. It isn't so much that the city is being sent from heaven, from God. No, we're told in verse 3, God comes with it. He's going to dwell in the midst of it. And his glory is dazzling like a brilliant jewel. Again, word pictures to inspire our imagination, but it's a real thing. Verse 16, and the city lieth foursquare, and the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with a reed, 12,000 furlongs. That's about 1,400 miles. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. It's a cube, or, or at least a, a pyramid. 1,400 miles on a side and 1,400 miles high. And he measured the wall thereof in 140 cubits, about 215 feet or so, according to the measure of man, that is, of the angel. Maybe the angel's bigger, maybe it's a little higher. It's a decorative wall. You've got a 1,500-mile, 1,400-mile-high city, a 200-foot wall is not much. certainly don't need it for security. No, it's there for the beauty. And the building of the wall of it was jasper, and the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth an emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth a topaz, the tenth a chrysoprasis, the eleventh a jacinth, the twelfth an amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold as it were, transparent glass. And, you know, the fact we're given precise measurements certainly frames the account as being literal as opposed to symbolic. The description of the bejeweled city paints a picture of the sublime in a medium that renders all the treasure of this world as nothing more than building materials. The size of a pearl, huge gates. You've got a city 1,400 miles high, a 200-foot high wall, and it's got a single pearl for a gate. That's quite a pearl. You know, if it is a symbol, like I said this morning, a, a symbol's never as good as what it represents. How glorious must it be? In his book on heaven uh, by William MacDonald, Heaven, Home Sweet Home, he points out that all the gold mined so far in the history of earth would only comprise a cube measuring 58 foot on a side. Now, that book was, I think, printed in 2004 or five, something like that. All the, the gold that's ever been mined in the world would only make a cube 58 feet on a side. Here we have a city measuring 1,400 miles in each direction. <laughs> Heaven is not some minor, dingy, petty thing. Our God thinks big. Verse 24, and the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it, and the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations in, into it, and there, shall be no wise, and there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. 
We see here that the, there's kings who bring in, the, in those who bring in the glory of the nations into it. Yes, into it. Verse 27 shows us who will not enter. God doesn't add words just to increase the word count of his book. They're there for a reason. I think we're to correctly understand these are real people entering a real city. No chapter breaks in the original. Let's continue because the vision continues in Revelation 22, verse 1. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the midst of the street of, of it, and on either side of the river, there was the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of nations. And there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun. For the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. And he said unto me, These sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. The river, the water of life, and it comes from God who dwells in their midst. There are trees, fruit, absence of a, of a curse, which again fell on man and creation. There are those who serve and those who reign. God tells us these sayings are faithful. We can depend on them and that they're true. We're also told by this angel who showed these things to John that these must shortly be done. And blessed is he who keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of the book. Not just obey, which we should, but is saying, who keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. That is, who continues to hold these as being truth. Well, we've, we've covered the bookend, so to speak, right? The, the Garden of Eden and the, the city of God. In the little bit of time we have remaining, I'll just go over some of the quote-unquote perhaps frivolous things we might expect in heaven. Music. We spoke that many Christians don't look forward to it. And having visited other churches and listened to some, and I don't want the pride to well up, I can see why they're not looking forward to praising God. And again, I, the danger for us in the assemblies is pride wells up because quote-unquote we're doing it the New Testament way. But it's evident when you sit there, and they have some wonderful musicians playing some wonderful music, but there's not a sense of participation by those who are there in the congregation. We know there's going to be praise of God in heaven, and rightfully so. And do we think it's just confined to these few passages in Scripture we have? I, I, I don't think so. It's going to be praise and music in heaven. That's that's part of what God has created. We don't think Satan created music, do we? He may have hijacked most of it today. But according to Scripture, I don't think Satan ever creates anything. We're told that there's going to be harps and trumpets. Does that mean nothing else just by omission? I think down through the ages, God has used music to bring glory to himself. Moses, David, Solomon. They have others. They, they wrote works that we have used to praise God, set to music. Think of Bach, Handel. 
They wrote music to, for the specific purpose of glorifying God. At the top of all his music, Bach wrote, to the glory of God. Mozart, people tried to say Mozart didn't believe in God. That's not what he said. He said, I could not long be friend to anyone who is not a friend to the God of heaven. I don't know if he's saved or not, but his music, much of it, it's obviously a gift from God. Beethoven, in similar fashion, even those who have misused the God-given talent, it's still a gift from God. It's been perverted, twisted by Satan. What about our hymn writers? Listen to the hymns we sang tonight. We go through our book and look at these godly people. Did they come up with it on their own? No, it's a gift from God. What about other creative endeavors like art, drama, and cooking? I know you can accuse me of, of delving into gross speculation here. But I ask you again, who gives creative ability? It's from God. Ultimately, the artistic creative, creative ability that man possesses was given by somebody. Was it created by God or by Satan? I think if we study Scripture, the evidence is obvious. Man may misuse creativity, but God still gave it. You know, we're made in the image of God. God is the only one who can create from nothing, but he's given us the ability to create with the materials he's given us in this world and the imagination he's blessed the soul of man with. I can't find any scriptural principle in the Bible which would suggest that redeemed man will be less able in heaven than he is here on the fallen earth. I mean, wrap your mind around that for a moment. What are we going to do in heaven with the creative ability that God has given us? What kind of works are Bach and Handel and Mozart going to crank out in heaven if they're there? We could say the same thing for food and eating. Those are pleasures we, we see spoken of and prophesied occurring in, in heaven. And Jesus says, you know, they'll come from the east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He told his disciples, blessed are you that you can sit at the table and, and eat with them in heaven. Learning. As I mentioned this morning, you know, God has hidden precious things with the intent we search them out. I don't think that's going to disappear when we're in heaven. William McDonald weighed in on the topic with, the truth is heaven is a place of endless progress, growth, and revelation. We can know this from Paul's words to the Ephesians, that in the age to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. McDonald went on to say, this means that throughout eternity, God will be teaching us what it meant for him to send his son to die for us at Calvary. If he's going to be teaching, then we will obviously be learning. The Gospel of John ends with this pronouncement that if all the things that Jesus had been done had been written, the earth couldn't contain the works. We really think that God's going to keep those things hidden from us, unsaid, unwritten. Same thing for exploring. Uh, McDonald talked about perhaps we'll go back in time or it'll be recalled for us the moment of creation. The human body 
heavenly beings, all these things that we desire to look into. That's a God-given curiosity. Sports. Again, we should be careful to refrain from foolish speculation, but who's given us the desire to excel? That's all part of this creative ability to do it, to create and do it well. Same thing for, for pursuing excellence in sports. Is it small of man to think that God doesn't love watching his children excel in whatever gift he's given them? So I thought about this. Don't we beam with pride when we watch our children engage in sport? We hope it's done in a godly fashion. But don't we beam with pride as we watch our children participate in sports? I was struck with this thought. Do we, do we possess some affectionate streak for our children that the creator of the universe doesn't have? <laughs> now, as I said this morning, if there's an organized sports in heaven, he's going to have to give me the desire to be interested in it because I just don't have that now unless I'm participating. <sighs> I know that if I find the extreme sports that I like to participate in in heaven, they won't be reduced by the fact that I can't die doing them. I tell you, I won't miss packing I won't at all miss packing parachutes. That's not the best part about falling out of airplanes. Well, rather than an exercise in foolishness, I mean, we just barely scratch the surface in this. I hope contemplating heaven in the truth that it's going to be a physical place for physical people, a place prepared for prepared people. I'm not saying we want to go there tonight through death, but we ought to be so, so thrilled. We ought to be so excited about this restored creation. If we think this one is beautiful, as the young girl said, what's it going to be like on the right side? Again, going back to what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2. I have not seen nor ear heard, but neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. We have a big God who creates giant things, glorious things, and as the son said, I, I no longer call you servants, I, I call you friends. In John 15, 15, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my father I have made known unto you. One day soon we're going to leave this sin-stained planet. We're going to appear before the, the God of glory. We'll be made spotless before him, possessing glorified bodies. He's got them waiting for us. Will our relationship in heaven be closer and more intimate with God than even what Jesus had with his disciples here on earth? And I, I think the, the answer is obvious. So I'd ask the question again, are, are you looking forward to heaven? Just, just barely scratch the surface tonight. Um, if you're looking for more uh, secular reading to augment your study of the scriptures, I can recommend Warren Henderson's little book called Afterlife. Again, William MacDonald wrote Heaven, Home Sweet Home. 
That's a, a great little one. I mentioned Ryan, Randy Alcorn's book on heaven. That's a much larger work. I read that when it first came out eight or ten years ago. And what a blessing that was. And looking at this and considering, again, that it may not have entered into the heart of man, but God in his graciousness, glory, and love for us is revealed enough that we ought to have an inkling of what he has in store for us in glory. And if we can develop that love for what is waiting for us after this life, like Jim Elliott, we can say we're willing to give up what we cannot keep in order to gain that which we cannot lose. And our passion, our love for our God and our Savior and this reward that's waiting for us will make us infectious with the love of God. We can lift up the Son of God that all men might be drawn unto him. Not just that he saved us from the pit of hell, and fear is a good motivator, but add to that this promise of great reward. If you're not sure you're going to heaven, again, if you have questions about that, if you're not sure it's not safe to die, as I said this morning, if you have questions, talk to one of us. We'd love to share you, with you the scripture. Our goal is to see every man, woman, or child that we come into contact with share this glory with us. Father, we thank you for the promise of your word, for this love that you've demonstrated in, through your son, and then this promise, this glorious promise that we will, we will be present when all the ravages of sin are swept away when we'll be removed from its presence, ever to be with our glorious Savior. Father, help us to develop a, a correct view, not only of this beautiful sacrifice and loving, this loving act of your Son when he died in our place, not just that it's kept us from the pit, but it opens up an eternity of glory, your glory forever. Again, Father, just help us that we might have open doors to share with others this glorious truth. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ.